This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Guy Verakai, a clinical assistant professor at Texas A&M University. We'll be discussing rat lungworm infection in brown rats in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Verakai. Hello, Sarah. Thank you, and thanks for having me. What's rat lungworm? Rat lungworm is the common name for a parasitic worm or a roundworm called Angiostrongylus cantonensis, which normally infects the lungs of rodents, including the brown and black rats. Where did it first originate? This species of parasite was originally described in 1935, so almost nine years ago, by a Chinese parasitologist called Chen, and who examined parasite specimens collected in rats from uh, Guangzhou, a region in China that was formerly known as Canton, and hence the species name, so Cantonensis, meaning in Latin, from Canton. However, it's thought to be naturally distributed throughout various East and Southeast Asian countries. When and how was it first discovered in the United States, then? That's an interesting story. The first state in which Angiostrongylus cantonensis was found here in the U.S. was Hawaii, and this goes back to late 50s and early 60s. So there's a parasitologist called Lawrence Ash that found Angiostrongylus in rats from Honolulu, Oahu Island. And around the same time, there were some human cases of eosinophilic meningitis that were confirmed to be caused by this parasite there in the same island. And after that, of course, this parasite was also found in some other areas of the U.S. or unincorporated territories in the Pacific Ocean, such as Guam and Northern Mariana Islands. And then later on, in several continental states of the U.S., including Florida, Louisiana, Alabama, Texas, Mississippi, and now Georgia. How did it get in the United States in the first place? How did it get to Hawaii? So that's another interesting story, or that's where it gets interesting. So it's been hypothesized that this parasite came along with rats or infected rats coming from Martian ships. So we've increased movements across continents and globalization and commerce, right, that all this have contributed to introduction of this parasite into new areas, including Hawaii and other areas of the U.S. However, a parasite might come into a new area and not establish, right, or not stay and, and become an issue. So we believe that this parasite just happened to find suitable environment and all the needs for sustaining its life cycle, right, including all animal hosts, which we're going to talk about in more detail. In your article, you mentioned definitive, intermediate, and paratenic hosts of this parasite. What do these terms mean and what's the difference between them? In the case of helminths or parasitic roundworms like Angiostrongylus cantonensis, uh, we call definitive hosts those in which sexual reproduction occurs. So adult males and females will mate and shed eggs or larvae in the environment. So some parasites have a direct life cycle, so they only need a single host to complete their life cycle. So those would be the definitive hosts. But in case of Angiostrongylus cantonensis, they have an indirect life cycle. So in addition to the definitive host where sexual reproduction occurs, they also require an intermediate host. So, and the intermediate hosts are those where the, there is development of larval stages of this parasite. So in the case of Angiostrongylus cantonensis, they're using slugs or snails, and within those snails or slugs, the larva, the first stage larva will grow within a couple of weeks, the third stage larva, which is the infected stage, to the definitive host. 
And to make it more complicated, there's still the peritinicles. Those are the third option, I guess, for angiostrogenous cantonensis and a couple other parasites, but they're not strictly necessary for the completion of the life cycle of this parasite or no other parasite. However, those animals may serve as a, like a biological incubator and will keep the infective larval stage viable for the infection of their definitive host. And usually this happens by a carnivorism or prey predator life cycle. So, for example, in angiostrogenous cantonensis, amphibians or reptiles can act as peritinic hosts. So they're kind of bridging the intermediate host and definitive host, making the chances of the parasites infecting a definitive host higher. Adding on to that, what are gastropods? Gastropods, those are snails and slugs, right? They're simply invertebrate animals within the class gastropoda, within the phylum mollusca. So and they comprise a diverse group of organisms living in terrestrial and aquatic systems, including freshwater and marine environments. And again, those are snails and slugs, as we kind of know since we're kids, right? So snails would be the ones with an external shell that's visible, right, to us. And slugs, on the other hand, they have actually also a shell, and we often dismiss, right? Because they're like a small internal shell that's kind of within their mantle, which is a slightly elevated area just behind their head, if you can picture a slug right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. I yeah, never noticed this before, though. I'm, I'm trying <laughs> to imagine hidden, what this is. They <laughs> have a hidden, <laughs> hidden shell. Interesting. Okay. Explain the life cycle of this parasite in rats, how they get infected, and how the parasite evolves. The rat, in this case, which is the definitive host, will get infected by ingesting third-stage larvae of this parasite. And this third-stage larvae, as I mentioned before, they have to develop within snail or slug or gastropod intermediate host. So the rodents or the rat can just ingest the eat pretty much the snail or the slug which might be infected with this parasite, or they may ingest the third-stage larva, the infected stage that might be in the environment or present in food or, or vegetables, for example. And two, as another option, they might ingest a peritinic host, which will be those animals serving as a bridge between the intermediate host or snail or slug and the rat. And within the rat, so that infected stage, will start migrating, right? So they will be ingested. So within the stomach, they will penetrate and start migrating through the body. They will go through a couple organs, uh, special brain, heart, and lungs. And the lungs are usually their final spot, their ideal location for them to complete their life cycle. So that's why they're called lungworms. And within the lungs, then the males and females will mate and the females will shed some eggs that will hatch in the lungs, in the airway, and then they will be, interestingly enough, caught and swallowed, and those little larvae will travel throughout the gastrointestinal tract of the rat and come out in feces as the first-stage larva, which will be, well, the one that may infect uh, the next susceptible snail or slug. Good heavens. What makes rats such opportune hosts for so many diseases? That's... uh, loaded question. Overall, I think every single animal species are infected with a plethora of agents of disease, right, including parasites, bacteria, fungi, viruses. But why rats are opportune hosts? 
for those pathogens that can also infect humans. And I think that's in part because of their lifestyle, right? So they, for a couple thousands of years, or if not more, they adapted to live in close contact with human beings, so within households or anthropogenically modified areas like cities, right, urban areas, and just looking for shelter and that food availability that we kind of provide. So within that, I think those pathogens had the chance or enough time to evolve and develop and adapt also to the human hosts, right? So crossing that species barrier from a rodent to a human and often causing disease. Then how do people get infected with this lungworm? We're not eating the rats or their feces, I hope. I also hope. So there are a few potential ways of humans to get infected with rat lungworm. So the first being through the ingestion of an infected snail or slug. And that can be accidentally or intentionally, but especially if those slugs or snails are raw or undercooked. So that is one of the ways. And sometimes because of that accidental portion, right? So it could be just within the salad, right? It was not thoroughly washed. And someone might ingest a snail accidentally or not knowing, for example. So that's one of the ways. And But the third stage larva, the one that infects the rat or the human being, may also come out of the snail or slug and survive for some time or not too long, but sometime in water or just like in food, right? Or on food. And that could be another way of humans getting infected. But it's always by ingestion of a larva that may be outside or within the ore's leg. There are so many reasons to thoroughly wash your greens. Gosh, yikes. What are some of the symptoms in people if they get infected with it? How would they know? Overall, we think about rat lungworm infection in humans. We think about neurological disease, right? So because of eosinophilic meningitis, and that's the, 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 the main symptom that it caused. But initially, so early on, after ingestion of the larva, after infection, there might be some abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting. But after that, the larva will keep migrating and, and go to the central nervous system by causing those neurological signs. Is there a treatment or a test for it? Yes, I'll start with the test because, well, then I think we, as a veterinarian or clinician, right, we're going to think about testing before you decide to treat or not. So diagnosing angiostrongyl's contaminated infection can be difficult uh, in people and any other animal, partially because there's no readily available diagnostic tests available for commercial labs, for example. But so you start thinking about the history, right, of those, some of those symptoms that I mentioned before especially central nervous system signs, such as headaches or myalgia, so muscle pain, things like that. And then to think about that, right? So there's the history of the patient. So did that person travel to an area where this parasite is known to be found? Did this patient also eat raw or undercooked gastropods or those peritonic hosts like frogs and others in those areas, right? So, and that will kind of guide, not the testing, but like, going to think or angiostrongyl's contaminants will go higher up in the list of suspicions, right? That may be causing that neurological disease. So for parasites, usually it doesn't matter if it's in humans or animals. We may also look at the levels of eosinophils, which are immune cells that fight that parasite infection. So it's called eosinophilia. So a higher eosinophilia will also be suggestive of a parasitic infection. And with all that together, right, we might 
think of, okay, what to do and what to test or how to test that animal or humans. And again, as a veterinarian, I keep saying animals, but humans are animals after all. Having said that, there's no commercially available test, but there's a lot of research being done throughout various countries where this parasite is important, right? Including a group uh, at the CDC who develop a molecular diagnostic test capable of detecting parasite DNA in cerebrospinal fluid of human patients with neurological disease, with using nephilic meningitis suspected to be infected by angiostrongyl scansonensis. So there are ways, but usually in a reference lab, not in a rapid test in commercial labs that we can buy easily. So as far as treatment goes, we need to overall think about how the patient is or what needs to be done. And I feel very uncomfortable as an animal doctor, not a human doctor, to talk about this. But as a parasitologist, I would say that we should include, of course, entomintic drugs, right? That will, those are like a dewormer, pretty much, that will kill the migrating worms. But, of course, it's dangerous, right, to kill worms in the central nervous system of people with neurological disease, right? So while they can be used, there's some debate or controversy in using or not that because, well, there might be a dead worm and the meninges of a person, and that will trigger an inflammatory reaction that can be also pretty bad, right? So there's no amazing treatment, but we need to think about, likely uh, think about some antiomintics like albendazole, corticosteroids to bring down that uh, potential immune response to the killing of the worm. And again, I'll add to the, the, the human doctors too on treatment of humans. But again, it's managing the, the patient, right, and, and making sure that the person is, is doing well and be, being careful with some sequelae or potential issues that may come from treatment. Tell us about your study now. What prompted it and what were you looking for? Our study was a, like a collaborative study among Zoo Atlanta veterinarians, veterinary anatomic pathologists at the University of Georgia, and my lab here at Texas A&M University, which again, focused on uh, parasitology and special vector-borne and zoonotic parasites. So initially, they were screening rats or rodents in general caught in the zoo premises and screening broadly to see if they would find some parasites or whatever other potential diseases that could be shared with people and other animals there at the zoo. And the pathologist, actually, they did the post-mortem examination, collected tissues for histopathology, right, so stain slide and whatnot, and they happened to find some worms that resembled the rat lung worm in some tissue cross-sections of lungs, heart, and brain. So then they contacted me to support them confirming their suspicion using molecular diagnostics. So I received the sample, so there were scrolls of formerly fixed paraffin-embedded tissues, and then extracted DNA, amplified DNA via polymerase chain reaction, and sequenced uh, those DNA of those parasites. And with the resulting sequences matched those of endostrogenous continences, so confirming the overall suspicion. Is this parasite becoming more widespread in the South? We know that the rat lungworm has been reported from various southern states, including Florida, Louisiana, Alabama, Texas, Mississippi, and Georgia, as I mentioned before. And, and those are the places where the parasite was confirmed through human cases or cases in different animal hosts, including rodents, gastropods, and some of those peritonic hosts. So interestingly enough, and we're talking about a zoological facility here, there are many cases of angiostrongylus and fatal cases of encephalitis due to this parasite in non-human primates kept in zoos. So a lot of those are maybe tips of the iceberg, right? We know that those cases are there. 
and we may confirm diagnostically. But while we cannot confirm that this parasite is actively spreading, we cannot assume that they are absent in some places that they have not been confirmed yet, also because of the lack of surveillance, right? So if we're not looking for something, unless there's a clinical case that we follow through in a human or animal, will not confirm that parasite is there, right? So I think there are chances, of course, for spreading or a range expansion, but we just don't know yet at this stage. Well, after all of this, what did you find? Well, we could confirm that Androstrongylus cantonensis, a rat lungworm, was present in those rats caught at Zoo Atlanta. And this is a novel area, right, or geographic area in which this parasite is present. Was there anything in particular that surprised you? The fact of finding this parasite of public health importance in a new area in the United States, in an urban area like Atlanta, is surprising and concerning, right? Because people and animals might be at risk of infection. And another interesting but not necessarily surprising finding was that we confirmed infection in rats from a couple of subsequent years, right? 2019, 21, and 22. So that suggests that the parasite is established there in that area, and it's potentially cycling within the premise of the zoo, right? So it's not an isolated finding, but it suggests that it is established and it is happening right there. Based on what you just said, how big a threat is rat lungworm to people and other animals in the Atlanta area? Currently, we do not know how common this parasite is in rats from Atlanta area or if it's present in other areas of Georgia. But I do not believe that the risk to uh, or the threat to humans or companion animals is very high at this stage. Because again, the presence of the parasite means risk. But again, if people are taking the risk, right, or exposing themselves by eating raw or undercooked snails, that's another step that plays into the actual risk of infection. One thing, however, that concerns me is that there are non-human primates that are of conservation importance, right, maintained in those zoological facilities. And there are several uh, reports of disease or fatal uh, infection by Angiostrongylus cantonensis in non-human primates from zoos across the southern U.S. So for them, I think that the risk of infection is relatively high, right, if the parasite is present there, because they might be just eating snails or slugs, right, in their premises. And again, there's no washing or telling the monkey to not eat a snail or slug that will prevent that. So that's a challenge. And that is a challenge. A lot of these diseases are becoming more and more challenges to wildlife and zoological wildlife. What do you consider the main public health implications of your findings? As I mentioned, right, so just the simple finding of a zoonotic parasite in a new area, which was never found before, already poses a level of risk to humans and other susceptible animals, right? But so there is not a concern in public health implications, but again, we need to know more what needs to be done or how common and how widespread it is and understand better how the epidemiology of this parasite in this area then act with education or bring in information on prevention, right? But again, often we are very reactive instead of proactive, waiting the problem to happen in humans to then act upon it. So right now, do we have any concrete ways to reduce the spread of it? Well, because it's parasitical with an indirect, a complex life cycle, right? There are probably many ways to reduce its spread or bring down prevalence or how or transmission, right? And it's like by pretty much 
choke points in the life cycle. So, for example, so pest control, targeting brown and black rat populations in the urban area or around the household, right? That would already directly impact transmission because there'll be many black rats to get infected to begin with, right? And again, all the other ways for humans to avoid infection are listed in the CDC, right? So it, of course, includes several factors like educating people that are living in, in endemic areas, tell them not to ingest raw or undercooked snails and slug and other potential peritinicals like lizards and frogs and shrimp, make sure that they're washing thoroughly their vegetables, right, and things like that. What additional research would you like to see done on this parasite? I can see, like, substantial gaps in our knowledge around the Los Angeles continents in the continental United States, especially. So I think the a first step would be to better characterize its current range so we can kind of truly or at real time track a potential range expansion instead of right just assuming that it is expanding. Maybe it was there and we just never found before. And so look overall, like sampling and testing rodents and gastropods from across the various states, it would be beneficial, right? It would be a first thing to do in a larger scale, I guess, but at a more focused or local scale, like perhaps in the Atlanta area. Like understand what biological and environmental factors may be contributing to the establishment and transmission of the parasites, right? which of nails or slugs are involved in the life cycle, where are they present, where the risk truly exists, right? So therefore we could understand or like or find some relevant targets for intervention to mitigate infection of people and animals. Tell us about your job and what you do and what you enjoy most about it. As you said, I'm a clinical center professor here at Texas A&M University School of Veterinary Medicine. My job is pretty diverse, so can be divided in three main areas which are the first one to be teaching and mentoring undergrad, professional veterinary students and graduate students. Second would be diagnostic service in parasitology. So I'm a director of the veterinary parasitology diagnostic lab here at the university. So that's a handful already. And the third pillar will be research, right? So mainly focusing on advancing diagnostic tools for detection of parasitic infections in various animal species, including companion animals, livestock, wildlife, including those that potentially are shared with humans. So what I enjoy the most, I think, as a veterinarian, as a parasitologist, I think since I studied parasites in vet school and I got caught or infected by parasites, I guess. So they're so diverse and complex. So that's the first thing. So they're so different. There's so many weird cases that we come across here diagnostically or on the research side. So there's never a dull moment, right? We have parasites of whales to wild bison or rats to rhinos, and again, everything in between dogs, cats, llamas, alpacas, cattle, and horses, right? So really, it is very different and diverse, so I enjoy that. And at the same time, right, trying to figure out what those parasites are, where they are, and how to better diagnose them and treat them, I'm also passing my knowledge, interacting with students from diverse backgrounds, and hopefully some of them will care about parasites enough to study parasites, right, and be the next parasitologist in an academic institution. Oh, it's a field that definitely needs some expanding, I think. Between bad bacteria, parasites, viruses, fungi, which all seem to be increasing rapidly, what worries you the most? Pragmatically, I think all of them worry me equally. So I would be worried about all of them. But as a parasitologist, I have to use this to call for the parasites, right? So parasites tend to be ignored right, in comparison to viruses and bacteria, partially because 
they may not cause a disease outbreak or usually they're not of a, like high mortality, right? But they are insidious chronic problems that we have in human health, animal health and whatnot, right? So in the human side though, parasites or even in the United States, they will affect the most vulnerable communities, right? Think about the US, but also globally in developing countries. So there's kind of a last of an urge to act and that bothers me <laughs> quite a bit. And so, yeah, we pretty much, I think we cannot ignore the parasites just because they're not necessarily, or many of them are not killing people as a virus would. But I think being proactive, so better understanding their epidemiology, where they are, distribution, right? Searching for new and better ways to diagnose and treat infections, uh, et cetera, that, that would be much better than just being reactive. So they're, they're usually neglected, right? Part of human and veterinary medicine. Well, last month we had the EID article about the brain worm and from the, the woman got from the python in Australia that was all over the news, and I did a podcast about it. That hopefully put uh, parasites a little bit more on the map. <laughs> yes, that was an unusual case for sure and, and unique enough, right? But again, they're more relevant and more common parasites infecting people as we speak, right? More than one-off case. But again, whatever brings some attention, right, and show that parasites matter and are important, are worth studying. Well, thank you very much for talking with me today, Dr. Verakai. Thank you, Sarah. It was my pleasure. Hopefully, I'll get some people excited about parasites. One more thing on my ever-growing list of things to be, I don't know, excited about is the right word, but concerned about. Well, and thanks for joining me out there. You can read the October 2023 article, Angiostrongylus catenesis infection in brown rats, Atlanta, Georgia, USA, 2019 through 2022, online at cdc.gov EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.